Good morning. So um, last week, I we we had to dismiss before we got to the really weird passage at the end of chapter three. So um, actually, we're going to look at that to start off today, and I'm going to take us through uh, verse six of chapter four, which works well because that can kind of be read as a unit anyway. And then I'm going to have to sneak out because I have a baby to feed. But um, so let's look at uh, chapter three, verses 18 through chapter four, verse six. And I'm just going to read this aloud. It's kind of a chunk. But, um, you know, as you hear me reading, listen for uh, two kind of key points in what Peter's doing, uh, which is that, you know, in this, this whole text, which is that Christ is exalted through suffering rather than in spite of it or instead of it. And uh, that's the first theme. And then second, that the faithful can be confident that they will be brought through suffering as well because of what Christ has done. Um, and through uh, divine judgment. Okay, starting with verse 18. This is because Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, in order that he might lead you to God, having been put to death as a human, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, since they were disobedient back when the patience of God waited in the days of Noah as the ark was being constructed, in which a few people, that is eight persons, were saved through water. The counterpart, baptism, now saves you, not as a removal of the stain of the flesh, but as a pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers were made subordinate to him, is at the right hand of God. Therefore, because Christ suffered as a human, You also must ready yourselves with the same pattern of thought, namely, that the one who has suffered as a human has finished with sin, to the end that you live your remaining time as a human no longer in accordance with with human desires, but in accordance with the will of God. Enough time has been lost discharging the will of the Gentiles, conducting yourselves in acts of unrestraint, lust, drunkenness, carousing, body partying, and unseemly idolatry. By this they are baffled, blasphemers that they are, that you no longer go along with them in the same flood of unrestrained immorality. Such persons will give an explanation to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the good news was proclaimed to the dead, that having been judged as humans according to human standards, they might live by the Spirit according to divine standards. Okay, so what we have here, uh, the first kind of puzzle that we're going to tackle is who are these spirits that are in prison uh, to whom Christ preaches in verse 19 of chapter 3? And then who are the dead to whom he preaches in 4, 6? And are these two related in some way? Um, So looking at verse 18 first, um, I made this point at the end of last class session, but I'll just try to emphasize it one more time. Um, when it says that Christ was put to death as a human, but made alive by the Spirit, uh, the, that phrase, as a human, uh, is, you know, from what I understand as I read the commentary, um, the word for human here kind of has to do with life as it reflects or pertains to this world. And so that's kind of a way of saying it is the kind of death-giving ways of the world that killed Christ. And it's those same ways that are 
torturing Christians, okay? So, but the Spirit is the one who resurrected Christ, and it's the same one that's going to empower you and resurrect you. Um, So it's that Spirit, looking at 19 through 20, um, by whom Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison, since they were disobedient back when the patience of God waited in the days of Noah. Um, Okay, so... There, you know, this is odd. And who are these spirits? Uh, and that there are two possibilities that are kind of commonly suggested. And then Joel Green introduces a third possibility, which I think he does a really good job building a case for. But the first two options, more or less, are one, this could be literally the disembodied spirits of people who were contemporaries with Noah. Okay, and that's kind of a rabbinic tradition um, that says that these people were not allowed into the kingdom of heaven. And so that's one thought. That's who this could be talking about. And then the second option is this could be the fallen angels of Genesis 6. You know, remember that's another odd passage about, I think it's called the Nephilim that that come down and they are tempted by human women and they decide to, you know, forsake the ways of God. So it could be that that's, uh, I think they're called the watchers or something like that. Uh, You know, again, I'll let Josh explain all of this if if you need him to. so these are the, again, this is a kind of a Jewish literary tradition. And the problem, you know, these are both viable options, but the problem with them is that they don't tie very easily into the following verses, the section that ends in 4-6. Uh, so what, what Green suggests is that if you look at this chunk of text is kind of integrated together, that it starts to make a little bit more sense, that this actually could refer to um, Christ kind of going in and freeing or pr- proclaiming the good news to souls that are that have already, pe- all people who have already died. Um, so kind of the, the harrowing of hell, if you've heard of that, that term before. Um, and the reason he argues for that is because uh, the term in 319 for spirits, he says, can refer to, that's kind of a broad, vague term that can refer to a lot of things at once. So it, it can overlap with the angels, authorities, and powers of 322. Uh, But it can also mean, um, it can refer to the kind of the stuff of the human that can be resurrected, okay? So the pneuma, the spirit of the person, the resurrectable substance of the human. So um, it can refer to kind of all of those things. It's an overlapping category. So the idea is that, um, you know, all of these are are being... um, kind of all of these, you know, personal beings, if you will, are going to take their right place underneath the, the reign of Christ. Uh, and, it, you know, it kind of, it makes sense to me, especially given what he's, what he goes on to say in, in verse 6 of chapter 4, that the good news was proclaimed to the dead. There he's specifically using a human term. Um, but, you know, he's also talking about these powers and authorities and angels made subordinate to Christ. So, it seems that we're looking at a broad category for um, all, all interpersonal beings that have been imprisoned by sin in some respect or have been disordered by sin are going to hear the good news, are going to have it proclaimed to them. Um, so, what more for that? Um, and this, this idea that he, it's actually talking about Christ. Um, and, you know, the tradition goes that on the you know, Saturday when Christ was in the grave, that's, that's the day when he went into hell and actually proclaimed the good news to the dead. That's the tradition. 
And um, what Green's pointing out is that to us that can sound kind of strange and a little bit too Catholic, you know, uh, to, to us good Protestants. But um, he's saying that actually is a really strong uh, tradition around the time when uh, the, the, you know, what he calls the Petrine tradition, the, the tradition of Peter, around the time when the, the Bible was being, you know, the New Testament was sort of being formed as a canon. Um, that was a very common belief, okay? So that was informing the way people were putting together the canon. So it's not surprising that that's probably how the early readers read this text, that Christ is actually proclaiming the good news to the dead. Um, so he says, and I think it's, you know, a fair point, we don't have to accept, you know, kind of all the, the different, the various depictions of what this might actually have looked like. We don't have to say Christ literally on Saturday went down to Hades, you know. But what we can say is that we can remain open to this possibility as another kind of instance of what it means for Christ to conquer death. And I personally find a lot of hope in this idea because, you know, I, I'm sure you all as children ask the same question I ask, which is what happened to all those people who came before Christ who never had a chance to hear the good news, right, who died? And we ask that question now still about people who are, you know, at some sense outside of the realm of possibility of actually hearing the gospel. And now, you know, we have a responsibility to share the gospel with those people. But again, there, it's just, you know, it's, it's not hard to imagine there are a lot of people in this world who never have a real chance to hear it, you know. So I find it hopeful that those people are not outside of this uh, proclamation and they still have the chance to respond to the gospel in some sense. And it would make sense that if you're in Hades and there, if there is torment of some sort, whether whatever the duration of that torment is, it would make sense that if Christ were proclaiming to you, that you would respond. You know? Yeah. Mean, well, to me, it would be not only just torment, but it could, this could be the spirits who lived in hope mm -hmm. but didn't quite see Jesus. But I see yeah. Hades as the unseen world where mm -hmm. all the spirits are. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, I like you, you know, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm not Catholic, never was Catholic, but no. it, it's very, <laughs> but it's very hopeful. I, I find this hopeful too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because you do struggle with it. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, even even the premillennial, the thousand, it, it, whatever you believe on that, the idea that Jesus is still graceful and is looking for opportunities mm -hmm. to proclaim himself. And I find very comforting. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the idea of if it's people are in torment and they're, you know, they're more motivated to respond, I can't speak to that as well because I think you're right, Hilton, that it's my understanding, and Josh can help me out here, Hades kind of refers to a holding place. Is that right? It's not necessarily it's a place so of... It's hard to tell, but you kind of get yeah. that sense. Whatever it is. <clears throat> I mean, it's so cloudy to understand. Mm -hmm. So even this, we're getting like a cloudy reference to something that's itself cloudy. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really clear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I see it similarly that, that this seems to be good news, and it does seem to offer some um, that some sort of response to that question about what about those people? Mm -hmm. and, well, we don't have it clear exactly, but. Like it's okay. You yeah, know, you yeah. might not get it, but it's been taken mm -hmm. care of. 
If, um, if any of you have ever read um, The Divine Comedy by Dante, or if you've had to read it for class, or if you're just kind of curious about it, there's actually a really, uh, you know, what I find to be a very beautiful depiction of this, that when Dante goes into the Inferno, and he's going on his tour of hell, essentially, there, is all, there are all these traces that there is, someone has already been there and released a lot of people who were captives there. And there is this, this rider that is talked about. He's come on a, a horse and released all these people. And there's just signs of it. He doesn't get to see it, but he sees that it's happened. And it's a really, you know, again, it's a, it's a picture of this that I don't think is literally necessarily how it happened. But it is very inspiring, I think, from a faith perspective to think about. Um, and then another analogy, if you've read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan goes into the White Witch's castle and kind of resurrects all the people that have been turned to stone. It's a similar idea. And so, again, I think it just goes very well with the gospel message of Christ extending the good news to all. So, yeah. Any other comments on this? This uh, cloudy, cloudy passage? Uh, uh, th- this, is a, this is a big story, in my opinion, because on the, on the cross, when, uh, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And literally... God turned his back on Jesus. I mean, the question arises, why did God let Jesus die? Hmm. And the reason is because he, this is what he had to do. This is his, his, uh, his lot, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. The psalmist refers to it and says, um, uh, he cried out to God and God heard. God heard him do that, but did not respond. Hmm. That's what's implied, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and so the question then goes: What did Jesus do all that time when he's you know kind of he's not dead? He's doing something. Yeah, that's and right. That, yeah. So I don't know how this got to be, but it's it's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and you make a you make a good point that um, if Jesus had not gone through death, then how could it? The question would be: How could he conquer it by right. you know through resurrection by the Spirit and um, and also kind of, that means he fully shared in the human condition, right? He's actually undergone death the way that we do. And, um, and then also that it's, it's kind of cool to think that might have been the very thing that enabled him to proclaim the good news to all of those who have, been, who, who have died already. That's what Randy Harris at, um, well, <coughs> was talking about this. And, then, and mm-hmm. Randy's take on it is that's what Jesus was doing in hell. He was saying, look, guys. I'm getting ready to do, watch what I'm getting ready to mm-hmm. do, and I'm doing it for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can listen to that on iTunes U. I think it's from 2014. Yep. I heard it live. <laughs> 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 live is better. Any other comments on this or questions? Well, and back to chapter 1, First Peter, he talks about that we have this inheritance that he's keeping in heaven for us. Mm-hmm. And it may be just the reassurance of the spirits in Hades that you have a gift that's coming with the resurrection. It's still it, it's being kept in trust for you. Yeah, that's right. Away from moth and corruption and all that. Mm-hmm. So you've got a new body that's being held, a new life, mm-hmm. uh, and don't don't give up hope. Yeah, that's right. It it makes sense, you know. And again, it's um, it's it. For me personally, it's a very encouraging kind of picture of Christ's work that I don't often consider, that you know, it, it extends beyond proclaiming this good news to just us, 
to people in situations that we would never imagine could even receive it. And that includes even those who, who are already dead. So I think uh, I agree. It's a, it's a very, it's a hopeful passage. Um, let's look at 321 through 22 a little closer as well. That the counterpart baptism now saves you, not as a removal of the stain of the flesh, but as a pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers were made subordinate to him, is at the right hand of God. So, um, first of all, this picture of baptism is not just a removal of the stain of the flesh. It's not just a once-for-all transaction, you know, that you're, you're baptized and then you're sinless and now, you know, there's no, no change, nothing required of you. Um, instead, this, this word pledge apparently is kind of, um, it's a term that's hard to translate into English, but it implies something like a commitment to new duties, kind of an ongoing way of life, a new commitment. And um, so I think it's interesting here that what, what's saving about baptism is not just the transaction, right? It's more that you are now inducted into this new way of life, this new commitment, this new way of being, new rhythms, um, this idea of death and resurrection, which is ongoing. Um, and as the antitype of the flood, um, I'll, I'll read a bit from what Green says. I think he says it well. He says, with respect to the days of Noah, Peter's reference is to God's bringing Noah and his kin safely through the calamity of divine judgment as they passed from the old sin-filled world into this new world. Baptism serves similarly. It signifies a new birth, a genuine turning from old life to new, realized in finding one's identity in a new web of relationships, a transformation of one's values and allegiances within the new community, and the embodiment of a new life world evidenced in altered dispositions and attitudes. Um, anything that you guys would like to say about baptism, this depiction of it as a turning into a new pattern of life? We're all, we're all, we've got that one. We're, we're good. We don't have to even have the baptism debate. That's nice. Um, uh, my husband did say, so, so does that mean baptism saves you? And I said, oh, I hope you won't ask me to comment on that. Um, but what, what I would say is, yes, I think baptism is absolutely a saving thing. And I think what, what we've gotten, you know, traditionally a lot of, a lot of a, a more kind of fundamentalist understanding of baptism can get wrong is that it's just the transaction, the transactional understanding of it. Um, but to then think that we don't need to go through the kind of um, the physical, the physical act of baptism, I think is a, is a mistake the same way it would be a mistake to think we can no, we no longer need the Lord's Supper or we no longer need the, the body of the church. I think God in his wisdom knows that we need these kind of physical markers of uh, what is important, you know, to kind of shape our lives. And so to, to say that our wisdom goes beyond God's wisdom and that we don't need baptism to, to be saved. We don't need the Lord's Supper to be a dynamic part of the body. We don't need to gather together is to kind of forsake this notion that we are bodily, that we are creatures and that we, we do need these things. These things are salvific. But it's a, it's a wider understanding of salvation than I think just uh, are you in or are you out, right? Um, so that's my kind of personal commentary on that. And um, 
N.T. Wright uh, put it pretty well. He says, but baptism, the thing which marks out the Christian publicly from the world, but, but baptism, the thing which marks out the Christian publicly from the world around, isn't just a matter of being made clean from one's former life, though it can be seen that very that way, precisely because it functions as a boundary marker for the Christian community. It shapes the confrontation that must then take place between the community and the watching world. That's, that's great, that. yeah. <laughs> Man, that's a handy quote to have have on hand back there. Um, that yeah, that's wonderful. It's it's a really, I think that's a really great way to to articulate it. Say that. Read that last line again. It's a. It's a. It, it functions as the boundary marker for the Christian community. It shapes the confrontation that must then take place between that community and the watching world. Yeah, I like that. <clears throat> as especially as a sense of it's a it's a point of identity formation for Christians. And it's a similar, you know, it, I would compare it in certain ways to a marriage ceremony for people who are who say that they are married. It's not that there's something that happens in that ceremony that like alters you, alters who you are ontologically, that's a fancy word for saying the the being, you know, who you are as a being. But it does in the sense that without that without that physical marker, without that actual that act of going through that ceremony, there is something that's missing for us, you know, as physical beings, as beings that are interpersonal and that, that um, react to that sort of marker, right? Yeah, he, he for the watching world. Say, this means that baptism provides the ground through the forgiveness or a sense through Jesus' death for that good conscience, which means that when the confrontation happens, the Christian need not be ashamed. Yeah, I like that. Especially, and that fits well with what's going on here in light of the, that we are you know, we are baptized for the sake of this pledge of good conscience to God. That's, that works just perfectly. Um, and then to, you know, in 22 goes on to say, these angels and authorities and powers were made subordinate to Christ. The, the notion, we're, we're pretty good with the idea of angels, but I think authorities and powers, that's a more vague thing to us. It's kind of hard for us to comprehend. And again, I, I would, I would definitely go with what Josh says over what I say when I try to understand the New Testament um, kind of rendering of this. But as I understand it, that in the New Testament, this term is, is not really a technical one. It's kind of an umbrella term to talk about the sort of spiritual dimension that uh, kind of energizes the physical systems of power. That, so think about like the structures that are at play um, in in this ancient mindset, the spiritual and the physical go hand in hand, and that's harder for us. We see those things as divided, I think, too much. Um, so they, this, this is an audience that would automatically assume there are spiritual realities that are not impersonal, right? They have, there's a kind of personality to them that are empowering um, the kingdoms, the, the systems of government, the, the, the earthly powers, right? And uh, it makes sense if you think in terms of, um, you know, if, this, if the earth is kind of a contested sphere, a one of spiritual battle, that there are um, kind of powers of good and evil that are at work. And it makes sense when you look at the systems of power all around us, you can see how there is this kind of contested spiritual element. And I think what, the thing that's hard for us, the leap, is probably that that actually does have a personal... Uh, content to it. It's not just something that's like a um, a neutral quality. It actually is something that should be made subordinate to God. So whether we think of that as demonic or angelic or 
you know, something a little broader than that. I think it helps to realize that for this audience, um, those two are brought into subordination to Christ, which means into to right ordering underneath his reign. Is that, I mean, I know that's kind of a, a hard thing to explain. Is there any comment on that, that passage? Or, Josh, is there anything you would say to clarify that? Okay. All right, so um, I'm going to wind up, but I, I will say that, um, you know, what we see, you know, continuing on from there in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, we see that baptism is this movement um, from living according to the flood of, you know, sensual pleasure to this new life that is aligned with God's will. We see the things that we're leaving behind. Um, it, you know, and then verse 4 explains that the people who have not made this move are going to be baffled by this, this alteration. They're going to not understand why we would, we would move from living according to the flesh to according to God's will. And then just an interesting note, I think, to make is that uh, Peter is applying the label of Israel, essentially, to Christians and Gentiles, to those who do not follow Christ. And I think this is a, an interesting move of sort of saying that um, those who follow Christ are kind of were grafted onto the body of Israel, right? The royal priesthood, the holy nation. And, um, and I, I like that picture rather than saying that what Israel, their identity is now gone, right? That it's no longer valid. It's saying something very different. It's saying who they have been all along now is widened and we're brought into it. And so that, that you know, use of the word Gentiles to talk about people who are outside of God's will, we kind of need to read it that way instead of as like, well, wait a minute, we're Gentiles. What about us? Um, okay, so I think that is, that kind of wraps up this portion. And I'm going to hand it over to Josh, unless there's any final comment. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, it, it is a really, it kind of invokes a whole lot of a, a kind of a theological imagination that, that again, as Protestants, we haven't really been encouraged to have. Um, that I think you're right, that it, it kind of raises the possibility that uh, this life isn't our only shot at responding, which is good news for those that have not, you know, you wonder, well, even people who have, even people who have heard, physically heard about Jesus, have they truly heard? You know, that, that's a question I've had before. And so to think that there is still a chance to respond in some way, you know, post-death is, um, I think is opened up by this, by this passage for sure. And again, to go back to the, you know, to the Catholic tradition of this, um, one of my favorite Catholic theologians, is very big on the doctrine of purgatory, and he says that he believes when after you know his his idea is that after he dies there will be three doors, 
and there will be one that leads directly into God's throne room. There'll be one that leads to you know, purgatory, and there'll be one that leads to Hades, to hell. And he says that he hopes that the third door is not an option for him. And it, but if the first two are, he said he'd better choose the middle one because to go directly into God's presence in his current state, he would kind of melt away. But to go through purgatory and be cleansed in some regard would, would allow him to then enter into God's presence. And, you know, again, this is sort of a, I, I think of that more as an image. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat idea. It's an image to kind of guide our, you know, our hope and what this might mean for us. Um, I don't take that too literally, but I think it's implied that, that we have that possibility after death to be made pure, to respond to the gospel in some sense. Yeah. All right, I've got to run, so I'm going to hand it over. So if you don't know, Lauren's training is in theology, not in New Testament. And... Uh, you still just witnessed an expert handling of a very complex New Testament passage. It's, uh, you know, you go to a concert sometimes and the opening act is a lot better than the closing act. That's, that's what it's feeling like right now. Uh, next week we're going we're gonna to team teach again and I'm going first because uh, I don't want to have to, to have uh, to follow that up. I mean, she just dealt with the harrowing of hell, baptism among Church of Christers. Um, <laughs> And the authorities and powers, all really difficult things. Um, uh, yeah, very well. Uh, next week we'll wrap up. I'll just say a few things, and then I'm going to do uh, a quick overview of chapters 4 and 5 um, at the first half of class, and then Lauren is going to do a theological overview um, with the last half of class. So it um, should be, I think, pretty interesting. Um, so we'll see how far we get in the next what, 10 minutes. So <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of prayers. Um, throughout Peter, there's been a focus on the end. Uh, it's here. It's at hand. Uh, there's a now and not yet, not yet element to this. It's kind of like, you know this, you go to a play, you know it's a five-act play. When act five shows up, you know you're in the end, but it's still got an end to happen. Uh, I mean, you, the f- finale hasn't happened, but this is where we are. We're in the final act, uh, although the... Um, very end hasn't come. And, and part of maybe what Peter's doing here, as Joel Green says, is he's helping them think about how they see the world. Their present circumstance is so, I think, bearing down on them as they're suffering, as they're being shamed and humiliated. Uh, what happens when you focus on the end is it puts some of this stuff into perspective. This is temporary. This isn't, despite all appearances that this is going to go on forever, this isn't going to go on forever. Despite the claims that this is the way things are, no, when we know the end of the story, we actually know how things are. And when you know how things are going to end and you know how things truly are, then you can live accordingly, um, and which is going to mean going against the grain of their culture. Uh, so he calls them to be disciplined, which is in contrast to, to verse 4, those in their culture who are uh, in excesses of dissipation and drunkenness. They, they are to have a different way of, of living through this world. Why? He says something like, for the sake of prayers, as though we're reminded that uh, this isn't just all about us, but there is an, uh, an important uh, piece to praying and to recognizing who we are and who God is. Uh, but it's, it's still kind of vague there. Uh, verse 8, above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multi- multitude of sins. Um, and verse 8, uh, verse 9, and verse 10, you see this one another language. 
love one another, be hospitable to one another, serve one another. Um, when, the, when the culture is crashing down on you, um, what they need to do is unify. I mean, it's always a need to unify, but especially when they're this vulnerable. You guys need to look out for one another. Um, so you get this one another language. The idea of love covering a multitude of sins. Whose sins? It's not clear. Is it the one who's loving has his sins covered, or is it uh, as you love someone it covers uh, sins? Um, maybe both work. You get a sense of the first as as you love, you experience forgiveness, kind of like the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive others. But then you can also see when you really love someone, um, it's kind of like 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you get the sense of love is patient, love is kind, love overlooks things. Um, but, but you see this bonding being called to in the church. Uh, be hospitable. In the first century, um, hospitality might show up in opening one's home. There's not a lot of rich people. Homes are small. Um, so if you had space, there was the expectation that you would invite the church to gather there. Uh, there weren't church buildings. So this was, this was home churches was all there is. So, and as a five, if you remember Enneagram, opening my home is very difficult. Uh, and I'm sure that's for many people, but sometimes we need to get over that, as my wife tells me weekly, because um, <laughs> she is very much a hostess. Uh, that's her gift, and it's my vice. Um, uh, having meals together, uh, offering sanctuary, especially to those who are being, um, who are being persecuted. Um, like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has. With love and hospitality and service, um, service goes against the grain of the culture. There's one of those ways uh, in the first century. What you're seeking to do is elevate your status. What culture, that's what you're supposed to do in that culture. What, um, but then the Christian culture, the way things truly are, is this work of service. Even um, those who would seem to be on top serving those who would seem to be lower status. And you can see maybe why Peter moves this direction because when you're experiencing so much shame in your culture, maybe what you want to do in your safe little Christian bubble is at least elevate yourself there. Okay, so I'm gifted to teach or whatever, so I want to make a big deal of this because everyone else is shaming me, but if I look important here, then at least I can convince myself I'm important. It's like saying, no, no, you've got to just get rid of that mindset about uh, comparing yourself to others. Uh, your life is about service. It's about recognizing who you are in light of uh, what God has made you to be. These things are gifts, and you use them uh, with that, that vision about how life truly works, not about this broken perspective of your culture. Um, so you see how that Christ-likeness kind of uh, works its way through. Then verse 11, uh, whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies. Why? So that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. The focus always seems to be back on God. Um, culture back then and culture now wants us to think about ourselves and our status and glorifying us. And uh, as we follow Jesus, who sought to glorify God, so we seek with our lives to glorify God, which is, again, uh, contrary to our nature. Um, to him, last part of verse 11, to him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I'll stop here at verse 11 with two two kind of closing points, and then we'll do uh, the rest at the beginning. To Jesus, notice who the glory is pointed to here. Jesus points the glory to God, and Paul, or excuse me, Peter is pointing the glory to Jesus. And this is an important move because Jesus was shamed in the culture. Um, there's this, um, there's this uh, old kind of graffiti etched into a rock uh, where um, there is the body of a man on the cross with the head of a donkey, and a man raising his hands next to it, and it's a mocking illustration saying, Alexander worships his God. His God is this 
you know the word, on a cross. This was the perspective of Christianity. This is the way they reviled those who were crucified and those who worship a crucified person. And yet it's this one who is crucified that Peter says, to him, to him be the glory. Your culture thinks that this, this is shameful, but you operate from a different perspective. There is true glory found in suffering cruciform love and serving one another. And this is glory forever and ever, or into the ages, as your translation might say. Don't get caught up in this temporary perspective, but look, recognizing it's the end, and you know what your life is about, and you know uh, where real glory is. Uh, so we'll, we'll end there, um, and we will pick up on the rest um, Sunday. All right. Thank you all. See you uh, next Sunday. When he says, when it's translated pagans in three, is that verse three?